This is Wayne Jurnell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Wait a minute. Neither of you are Michael. This definitely not Michael. Absolutely not. Well, this is this is very strange. So so Michael had father duties that pulled him away at the last minute. I don't think Michael's ever abandoned me like this, but fortunately, we had a full house tonight. So we still got a good podcast ready to go. So how are y'all doing? How's the weather? The weather's good. I'm Jim Garrett. I'm currently a visiting professor at uh, Teachers College, Columbia, New York City, and where the weather has been quite tolerable. I was anticipating a full snowy experience up here this winter, but I just read on my way up to get on to the podcast that in Central Park, they're, they're making snow so that they can have their annual snow activities in Central Park, which when I first saw that, I thought, hmm, that's really interesting. And then, you know, really quickly, just like with a lot of news these days about weather, starts to be really, really eerie and really alarming. Yeah, it's really haven't had a real winter here in Texas, I don't feel like. And and it doesn't always get that cold, but it, it definitely feels like I always wonder how much of it is in my own head. Like I haven't gone and looked at the temperatures for previous years. But there's been no time when I'm like, oh, I can't bike somewhere. It's and a lot of days throughout the winter. It's been like 70 degrees. So I don't know, Zach, how do you feel? You're in the same area. Yeah, I'm in the same area. So I'm Zach Seitz, uh, editor of Visions of Ed, making my first full-on appearance on the podcast. But the weather has been extremely mild. There have definitely been days where I've worn shorts and a t-shirt to do dreaded yard work, which has made it a little bit nicer. But, you know, I'm, I'm from the Midwest, so I do miss the snow and cold weather every now and then. So it it is a little eerie to have be able to wear shorts and a t-shirt in January on Saturday. And I think for me, I just view everything through the lens of, of the ecological crisis and climate change now, right? Like if there, I mean, even if there's like s- storms like there would have been in previous years or a snow or something, like I see it through that lens now. And so I think one of the, I think for me, one of the hardest things about climate change be- besides like the just overwhelming kind of nature of the crisis, which, which by the way, Jim has already spoken to in episode 52 when he talked about difficult knowledges. If you haven't listened to that episode, that was a great one. But I think just, you know, seeing everything through that lens uh, is kind of, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to make sense of it. And I know as a social studies educator, I'm supposed to have all these tools right, <laughs> to, to do so. I don't know. How do you all feel? Uh, definitely can be a little depressing. And, and you know, it's, it's also important to remember not to get caught up so much in the day-to-day weather, but to look at overall trends of how the climate is doing. So when we have a whole winter of it being really warm, mm-hmm. it definitely, you know, like you said, just kind of makes you feel lost. And, and especially in the social studies where it might not seem like climate is a natural fit, definitely within the curriculum, it, it kind of leaves you wondering how you can incorporate this into your classroom. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Jim? Right. I feel like um, when we think about the weather and how it impacts our daily life, it's one thing. And I think at this point, we're well enough alerted to the reality of climate change that it connects to these really broad, 
wide-sweeping, consequential kinds of processes that are not only on the way, but are already unfolding. And so it really warrants our attention in social studies education. One of the, I don't know if it's a mistake, but it, it sometimes feels like one is I started following David Wallace Wells on Twitter. It's very, I mean, it constantly reminds you of the issues and the way they surround us. And it, it's, it's, you know, we live in an attention economy. And I think that's one of the challenges that we we face around this issue is what information do we get? What information do our students get? What information do most people get, right? Like, the, how is it tilting in? And there's certainly been, while it's easy to be pessimistic, there has been a shift in the narratives. I mean, right, like in the last couple of years, and maybe it's because we're getting in a more dire situation and it's becoming more obvious, like there's certainly a recognition, right? Like the, it's starting to go away whether climate change is happening. That arguments are starting to fade away. Now, there's still a lot of obfuscation and avoiding responsibility and and, and what we're going to do. But like, I don't know, I, I, I like to start, feel like there's still some progress being made because um, I know there has to be, although I know it needs to be more urgent. Yeah, definitely one of the things that have gotten me really interested in this topic and this issue has been the work that activists and, you know, now Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have, have brought this into the forefront and made it a part, a major part of our political discourse. Whereas before it was often kind of this fringe topic that wasn't talked about, it all of a sudden now almost daily you'll see news coverage on Vox mm -hmm. or Slate or The Guardian of some climate-related issue and not only the issue but how it impacts people all around the world. So with that, I think we're all thinking about climate change, right? We're all trying to figure it out. And fortunately, there are some, some. I think it's been a largely ignored issue in social studies. I was fortunate that my advisor through my through my work at the University of Oklahoma, Neil Hauser, has actually was writing on this and teaching a lot about it. When I was there, he, he wrote on ecological democracy and thinking um, beyond even just human-centered concerns, although we're concerned with sustainability for our own communities, thinking beyond that. And so I was, I was fortunate to be able to think about these issues in a lot of ways, but we have some good social studies scholars doing this work now. And so we'd like to welcome in a couple more people. Michael's missing out today. Super what, a, what a treat. I know, super fun. We'd like to welcome in Mark Kissling and John Bell. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having Hi. us. How's it going? Can you each tell us a little bit about your backgrounds in education? Sure, I'll, I'll start off. This is this is Mark Kissling. So uh, I was I was born and, and raised in Mid Michigan, uh, actually not too far away from Jim, and uh, went out to college in New Hampshire. Did my student teaching out there, and then stayed out east. Uh, took my, my first, first teaching, teaching job in, in training out in Massachusetts. I feel like you're on like the John Dewey. Did you follow the same like route as John Dewey from Michigan to? Oh, he was in Vermont, wasn't he? Yeah, but close enough. It's. I mean, I feel like I don't know the difference between those two states. I'm sorry, everyone in those two states. Well, so I'll say that. I, so I went to Dartmouth College, which is right on the Connecticut River. So I actually swam to Vermont from New Hampshire when I was in college. So maybe I was channeling Dewey a little bit there. Um, not, a person, not a bad person to channel. Um, but so, so I, I, my first teaching job was in, in Framingham, Massachusetts. And, you know, I was committed to teaching for social justice. And it wasn't until I went to graduate school back in Michigan, at Michigan State, that I started to conceive of social justice as embedded within ecological justice. And I think that's really shifted my thinking. And that's put me kind of on the trajectory that I've gone on. So now I'm at Penn State University now, uh, State College in central Pennsylvania. And 
thinking quite a bit about what, what does it mean to teach in Earth and Social Studies, which yeah, hopefully we'll get into a, a little bit here. I'm John Bell, and uh, I got my, uh, my first degree from Hampshire College in analytical chemistry. So I have a science background and then spent the next a little bit more than a decade teaching science and engineering in California. And, you know, always as I was teaching, I was really concerned about social justice issues and ecological issues, but I saw them as being separate. And, you know, as a science teacher and engineering education teacher, I really thought the best thing I could be doing was to, you know, teaching the skills and knowledge that I thought people needed to address the, the climate crisis. Now I'm a doctoral student at Penn State and sort of had this realization at some point along the way that, you know, this, this separation that I saw between socialist issues and ecological issues is just just sort of, a I don't know, doesn't really exist. I think those are actually really tightly bound together and really sort of coming from the same place, the same set of beliefs and assumptions. So, you know, I really started to, or I really stopped seeing climate change and other ecological issues as being something that belonged in a science classroom. And along the same, uh, you know, as that was happening, I met Mark, started to talk with him, and got really excited thinking about, you know, to address this issue, we have to address the social and cultural side, as well as the, you know, science technology side, sort of the basis of, uh, of how I got involved yeah, I often feel, I say this to my students a lot, but I tell them, you know, you're in like a social studies methods class right now. And I often start by saying that's an artificial designation that adults made up, which harkens a little bit from people like Dewey, but also critical scholars, Paula Freire and others, right, have pointed out that that oftentimes one of the problems we have is we separate these subjects out, even though they don't exist as separate in the world. And then it's harder to access the social problems, right? Because yeah. the, because what ha what happens is like the disciplines take over. We follow the disciplines, we follow the content. And because I feel like if we if our curriculum was more emergent, which the social studies has roots in that, right? The problems of democracy course, which was in schools, not probably taught this way, always was supposed to be about identifying problems in the world and then using social studies lenses to help at that. But there certainly could have been room for science lenses, right? And, and so it's just a real shortcoming I think we have in schools that we don't have more freedom to say, hey, this month we're going to study climate change and the ecological crisis and see what difference we can make. Because to me, that's an incredible educational opportunity, but it's hard. So I'm really, first thing you guys have already taught us is we need to come together, right, across disciplines and find ways to do this work together. And so I'm just wondering, Mark and John, about your research and what you know, like it does seem like there should be opportunities to teach about climate crisis and social studies. But are, are there some barriers that you all found in, in your research to why that's not happening? And that's actually a great question, Jim. And let me let me go ahead and point out real quick that John and Mark published in Theory and Research in Social Education. Congratulations to both of you. Thank you. So the article is titled Teaching Social Studies Amid Ecological Crises. Right. And I think Jim's question is a great place to start off. Well, so let, let me give you a brief overview of, of the study. We surveyed over a thousand teachers, secondary social studies teachers in, in Pennsylvania, and we asked them ab about environmental issues, their personal beliefs about them, their professional beliefs, to what degree they teach about environmental issues in, in their social studies classrooms. And in our analysis of, of the survey responses, we, we lay out four barriers that, that we found. And, and the first one maybe speaks a little bit to what we've already been talking about, kind of the, the way schooling carves up 
the, the experiences uh, of, of learning of, of the curriculum. So the, the first barrier is simply that environmental issues are, are seen primarily as science. And, and yet we can talk to uh, 95% of the, the over 1,000 respondents said that they thought environmental issues still belonged in the social studies curriculum. So that, that's encouraging. But the idea that, uh, no, that's science. That's not social studies. Right. A second barrier related to that is that uh, many of the teachers commented about not feeling comfortable with environmental issues, not feeling prepared to teach them, not having the knowledge to teach them, which we tie in the article back to this idea of environmental issues being put in the science box. A, th a third topic, and, and Jim, you've certainly written a good bit about this, is that environmental issues are controversial, that they're difficult knowledge, right? That they are not easy for teachers to be bringing into the classroom, right? And then a fourth barrier was to, to quote some of the teachers, the social studies curriculum is already too bloated, too jam-packed, right? If we had endless time, we would bring this in, but, but we can't do that. So th those were some of the barriers we laid out, but, but in some ways, we, we think we tell a pretty optimistic story with our data because we, we do think they're encouraging signs. And and that actually it's it's not the teachers that we surveyed. It's it's the field that the, the teachers need to be supported to do the work that they want to do. That's interesting. You know, it, it made me think when you think of the, the barriers of just the, the curriculum of social studies and figuring out where it goes. I'm probably a good example because I went in, I think it was around 2000 seven or so, 2006, 2007, I went to the University of Colorado for a Gilder Lehrman Institute on environmental history. Mm. And I went to, it was a week long. There's a great environmental historian there. And we did, we worked with her for a week. And, you know, we read all kinds of great books like Down to Earth, Nature's Role in American History by Ted Steinberg. And we, we worked on curriculum, things like that. But when I got back to my classroom, it's like it was easy to forget because none of the standards or books or anything included it. And I thought it was important. I wanted to teach it, but I still struggled with actually what would the lessons look like. It still required a lot more work even after spending all that time with it. And so I think that what you're saying about teachers need support is is really important because creating curriculum is hard. Yeah. So, so let me lay out a little bit of the framework that, that I think... Um, contextualizes this work. So, you know, it, I think it's important to start with the, the first sentence is we say that we live in ecological crisis, right? And, and Dan, you said this right off the top of the, the podcast that you, that you kind of see the world now through, through that lens. And, and we want to echo that and say, yes, that, that everything we're doing in social studies, everything that we're doing, period, is framed by the the earth and contexts of our living. And our field has not been one that has thought this way. You know, this is pretty marginal in the current field. Although I appreciate, Dan, that you mentioned Neil Hauser's work. He, he's been really important in cultivating what hopefully is going to be growing even more and more through the, the next years. So naming that we, we live in ecological crisis and then in social studies, we have a field that has a strong anthropocentric history. And so part of what we do in the article is take some of the earliest definitions of social studies, going back to the NEA Committee on Social Studies in, in the 1910s, and just highlight the fact that they're talking about mankind. They're talking about human betterment, bettering human relations. 
And then that tracking that all the way through to the present, we're in Pennsylvania. The study is situated in Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Department of Education's definition of social studies is human centric. And so trying to, to call out, you know, this is who we've been. And yet the framing of teaching students to be effective citizens to better their communities, which is what we have been and what we are, is is very well suited to expanding out to what Aldo Leopold would call the land community so that we're no longer just thinking about humans and human society, but we're thinking about everything that goes into the, the communities of the earth. So that that's certainly humans, but that's all living beings. And that's materials like uh, like water and dirt and, and all the, the various materials that come together that make our lives what they are, that's, that sustain us. So that we we talk about this as earth and social studies, but, you know, it's we focus on the teaching of environmental issues. But but we're also trying to put forward this conception of social studies that we're we're hoping can can lead to kind of a more robust interdisciplinary teaching of what it means to be a citizen. One of the things I noticed in the article was how there was a, a break in the history of, of social studies education where environmental issues were at the forefront in the 60s and through the 70s. And then it really dropped away in the 1980s. And that coincides with the massive increase in fossil fuel use. I was wondering if you could talk about how that figures into uh, you're thinking about the place of currently of uh, social studies, or um, excuse me, climate crisis within the social studies curriculum. It's funny, Jim, too. I'll add, I thought you were going to say standardized testing. It coincides with standardized testing, but it's interesting to see those are possibly interrelated. Totally interrelated and and like all related to the neoliberal project of privatization and the rapid expansion and unleashing of global trade, which of course, as we know, like rests upon and necessitates burning more and more fossil fuels. Yeah, so this is this is great. And maybe I'll, I'll say a little bit and then, John, maybe you can also jump in on this. So it's not a coincidence that a nation at risk comes out in 1983. And the really the the, the rise of neoliberalism start, starts to increase through those early, the early 80s. And, you know, we, we have like a sentence or two in the article about this partly because there's so much more that needs to be written about it. Just to kind of go back the, to uh, you, what you referenced, Jim. The, so yeah, so uh, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, comes out in 1962. And in many ways, that that kind of precipitates an environmental movement that, that takes hold, hold pretty strongly, including in social studies. In an earlier version of this paper, that was probably 8,000 more words than it currently is, we, we quote heavily from Richard Nixon's 1970 State of the Union address. And right, you know, we, I, I have serious qualms with Nixon as, as a president, president, but one, one of the th- things that he, he did was say in 1970, look, we got to get our act together with how we're treating the environment. I said, this is a bipartisan issue and we, we've got to undertake serious work. And, you know, the first Earth Day comes shortly on the heels of that. An Environmental Education Act comes later in that year. But so like social education takes note. There's a 1971 special issue of social ed focused on the environmental crisis. A couple of years later, the editor of social ed comes together with 
editors of other subjects, practitioner journals, and they release a joint statement saying we need to have interdisciplinary environmental education. Well, and it seems like we even had that somewhat recently. Wasn't it Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich who had a joint commercial on climate change? What was that, like 15 years ago? And before it became politicized otherwise, and maybe there would be dis- disagreements among people in the in the kind of centers of parties around how you address climate change, right? Like whether you invest in in free market green solutions or whether it's like the it's led by the government, the New Deal, the Green New Deal type solutions. But yeah, I mean, this is... That's one of the hard things is how media literacy, I guess, would be the, the frame we could use has 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 and propaganda has been so problematic and disinformation these last 15 to 20 years since Al Gore's you know movie came out, which, by the way, I feel like we all owe Al Gore an apology like he's been getting hammered for like. I feel like the last 20 years for internet comment and and <laughs> and environmental, and I feel like we owe him apologies in two directions. Just on the environment, the internet, we won't give him a pass on. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. So I'll say just a great resource that uh, what you're talking about, Dan. Uh, Nathaniel Rich has a book out called uh, Losing Earth, and it started as a special issue of the New York Times magazine, but he he walks he walks through the history of the last 30 years and essentially how climate change was a bipartisan issue and and then how it's become politicized to its current state where it's one of the most divisive issues. So I'll say real real briefly that in the mid 70s, NCSS gives attention to the environmental crisis. There are chapters in the NCSS yearbooks about it. And then it kind of wanes. The the energy crisis comes, comes to the fore there's attention to energy. And then I think largely with the, the rise of neoliberalism as, as a kind of a, a broader social context, but then in education with the nation at risk, I think that completely reorients social studies positioning and I mean, other areas too. And I'm just thinking as I was flipping through all the, the issues of social education, I think I started in the early 60s and just sort of flipped my way through looking for Anytime they came up with uh, environmental issues, and you know, at some point, I think I remember seeing like that, uh, the big blue dot, the picture of the Earth that came out featured on one of the covers or somewhere inside there. And then throughout the 70s, there's these, just like all of these articles, thinking about it, talking about it, collaborations with scientists, and I mean, I think it was like 81 or 82. There was like one last thing thinking about like sources of energy and then it was just gone. Uh, I don't think, I mean, I, I went through another like decade and a half, maybe up to 2000 or whenever I could start searching for it, you know, in the online uh, directory and I didn't find another article. So it was like this sudden stop that I thought was kind of remarkable. John, if I remember correctly, um, social ed even started up a, a series that they were going to come back to it over the ensuing issues, and then that just faded away uh, without any kind of, you know, detail about it. Yeah, I think I found one or two articles in that series, and then it would just disappeared. I mean, but even like full poster foldouts of like, you know, climate change, and I don't know, it's it fascinating to see. I mean, it's sad to see how it sort of disappeared. I think one of the things, there was a chapter by Jody Lettermuir in our keywords book on the environment. And one of her big points she makes is that we see the environment as something separate from ourselves as opposed to something that, you know, we are part of, 
right? We are intertwined with the environments all around us. It's part of, we are part of it. It's all, there's not really these separate boundaries that we kind of even make in our mind, right? Think of the environment as like, you know, uh, national parks, <laughs> not, yes. not ever. And I hope I'm, I'm representing her chapter correctly. But I think one of the things, you know, we have to wrestle with in understanding history is, um, I know one thing Neil Hauser had us read is he had us read the Ishmael books. I don't know if anyone's ever read those Ishmael books by Daniel Quinn, which really positions agriculture as the beginning of humans starting to try to control the world in ways that were harmful. And so he even uses the term totalitarian or agriculture as a way of thinking about how agriculture societies did not allow other societies to exist over time, right? They took areas and they saw people that lived in gathering and hunting ways as being a threat to agricultural society and looked to eliminate, absorb them. So as a form of, you know, kind of some kind of uh, macro form of genocide. And, and so in thinking about that, it also makes me think about like how for it's not all of human history that's been this extractive economy. And we think of humans as having been that, but humans are something else. And that's a big point is seeing that memory. Textbooks often get it wrong. I remember like even textbooks having like timelines in them where it's like, like agriculture here, like gatherers and hunters went away right then, um, even though it was a very gradual worldwide global kind of process. And so, yeah, I don't know. I just think there's a, there, our history doesn't even encapsulate a lot of these issues well. Yeah, Dan, that makes me think about something else from Mark and John's article that I found really helpful and provocative that systems of domination don't just exist between human and nature. And, they, and so I was wondering if you, either of you could talk about the ways that climate crisis is related to other systems of injustice, whether it be white supremacy or misogyny or how, how you see these issues being related to each other. Yeah, sure. That's that's great. So in in the article, we we look to the work of Rebecca Martisevich and, and colleagues and and Chet Bowers and eco justice educators who speak to the notion of value hierarchy that that we fundamentally have a series of values and and we've we've ordered them and whatever is on the bottom is in service to whatever is on the top. And there, there's a lovely graphic uh, in multiple versions of it, kind of an eco versus ego graphic. And the ego has essentially the white male on top of a pyramid foundation and then everything beneath it that supports that white male on top. On, on the opposite of that is eco, where it's a web, where all the living beings are, are intertwined, they're interdependent. So if, if you take you know, the, the idea that human is on top and then other than human living being is underneath. You've got a value hierarchy there. But then we also have social structures where you might have within uh, human society, white male, white settler male, you know, U.S. citizen on top and then other peoples beneath that that are that are meant to serve the what's on top. And I think the, the underlying idea there is that in these hierarchies, injustice is is tied together across all of them. And I, I'm, I'm a little worried. I'm kind of going off here and I hope I'm hoping not losing people. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just, a quick example is so we just had Martin Luther King Jr. Day, King's Beyond Vietnam speech at Riverside Church, where he connects extreme materialism, militarism and racism saying that the roots of those things are fundamentally the same thing. One of the arguments that we're trying to say is that that, that is fundamentally true now. 
right? That that climate change is deeply tied to racism. You know, that that environmental racism is something that crosses all aspects of of society and you can't separate this out. And then so it becomes difficult. Well, what do we do when we have these histories and inertia and discourses that fragment? How do we bring these together? Yeah, and I think that really brings up a good point, Mark, where you were kind of, you mentioned the environmental racism and, you know, as five white males talking about this, it is definitely something that, you know, we are all in privileged positions when it comes to this issue because, you know, most of the people who are impacted by environmental issues, whether it's spillages from coal ash ponds or, you know, the the poisoning of the citizens of Flint, Michigan, are people, they're, they're people of color. And, you know, when we talk about environmental issues, like you were saying, you can't divorce those racial issues that we have in our society from the environmental issues that we have. And so I think, you know, as a teacher, as a current social studies teacher and a current researcher, I, you know, one of the things that I really have tried to do is to not only bring uh, those social justice issues into my classroom, but also kind of find a way to, to also bring in environmental issues. And it's on it can be challenging sometimes, especially without that structured curriculum. You know, climate change isn't mentioned at all in the Texas social studies standards uh, between grades 6 through 12. But, you know, it, it's just one of those things where when we start talking about this issue with students, it's it's very important that we not just separate it out. And, and it's it, like it, it is the social studies issue of our time. Right. And I, I was recently in Belize traveling and the whole time I was there, I just increasingly thought about, you know, there's these areas of the country where there's little peninsulas that have like like 20 feet wide. I mean, any ocean level rise is essentially going to cut off one part of the country from the other. And I was and as, as I was there, I was thinking about how much less, you know, uh, of a carbon footprint the citizens of Belize have and how bad the impact is going to be on them. And to come back here and and. I've mentioned it on this podcast and a lot of people know I'm Carlos in North Texas and, you know, I'm in a very uh, privileged position to be able to do it. And it's hard to ask people to do that when the infrastructure is completely built for car travel. We've been, to me, in my opinion, screwing up our, the way we build our cities and communities. We've been using a sprawl model, uh, which Jeff Speck says is the, the worst invention in American history is suburban sprawl. So people are kind of caught in it because they feel like they've moved to a certain place for their children's schools, which that's a whole nother, by the way, racial issue that we need to discuss. But, you know, every day I, I just in my mind, I mean, maybe because it's um, I'm on my bike and <laughs> I'm pedaling away. I just see cars and I'm, I'm curious what other people think about it and if they're how they're able to think about, you know, even our changes in our individual behavior within systems that aren't really supporting it. But then I also remember man, there's some big companies that can make some changes real quick that can change things way quicker than us. It's not our fault that a lot of things are designed the way they are. Yeah, and so just think about and notice what we're all saying. These are all social studies topics. Geography, zoning laws, the kinds of infrastructure projects that yield the kinds of results like we see in Flint or any of the other kinds of policies that really sustain and animate environmental degradation. These are all directly social studies issues. And so I think it, it really, to speak back to, or to bring back up the findings that, that Mark and, and John found in their study is very encouraging. Uh, maybe one of the few bright spots we can find in the research that's coming out about this stuff. 
Yeah, it's it's like a little tweak, right? I mean, I think is to see these as ecological issues. There's just today I was planning um, a class I'm really excited about coming up where I'm bringing in a disability justice act activist who focuses a lot on ex- accessibility issues. And one of our special, one of my special ed colleagues here, and we're going to, one of the things we're going to look at is the urban geography. And so when we study maps and learn how maps work, we're going to look at our transportation maps. But I'm not just framing this as how do you get from one place to another? My argument is that public transportation is an ecological issue, right? That it is, you know, if, if we can take public transportation, it is far better for the environment than all taking individual cars, helping people to start to see that. And and for people in wheelchairs and other things, it's a, it's a civil rights issue, right? If there's no curb cuts for them to get from one place to another, then it's hard to say that they, you know, have to get there in a different means. So th- that's something I want to see in the second grade transportation unit, you know, where, where that's kind of like fundamental. We're going to, we're going to think about planes and trains and, and cars. Let, let's think that, think about it from an ecological lens, you know, or even like, you know, my, my son's a first grader last year, he had a, a unit on community citizens, you know, and thinking about community citizens, yes, as police officers and mail carriers, but also as bees, right. And, and also as cows, and also as the tree, right? So like these fundamental notions, really it's an earth in, well, it's an earth in everything, but it's an earth in social studies. Well, and also too, Mark, I think that brings back an earlier paper that you wrote about teaching ecological citizenship to students where, you know, you view your role as a citizen through that ecological lens and it can really kind of open your eyes to all the different things you can do. Kind of like what Dan was saying to, you know, make a difference not only in how we access, you know, transportation in, in our communities, but then how we build them and design them to be, you know, good for not just humans and cars traveling, but for, you know, the animals that, that live in our communities and everything else. There's one thing I do fear, though, and it's it's the same thing that happens at the end of the Lorax, right, is that um, at the end of the, the book, the Lorax, they say, you know, but how are we going to change this? Well, you have to do something. And it kind of puts it back on individuals when corporations like ExxonMobil are, you know, the the really is more responsible for a lot of these things than we are as individuals. And of course, we've all uh, are complicit in many of these systems. But if ExxonMobil took this issue more seriously, we could un- we could start to get to a place a lot quicker. So yeah, I also think about how we have to figure out how do we look at our individual behaviors, but we've also got to look at the system be- systematic behaviors and corporations and companies that have extracted the world. But you know, one thing, one other thing I'll just add too is life may not be as comfortable as it is now. And I think that's another thing people don't really think about is that we, we think that tech is going to save us or we can make these changes. There seems to be a time coming soon when maybe some of the, the comforts of life are going to have to disappear to make the changes we need to make. Well, so I, I also, Jim, can, I think, can speak to this really well, right? The, the, the comfort issue. This is it's, it's not easy. It's very difficult. But, I, you know, I, I want to add to it real quickly, just this idea that if tech is going to say this, it's a scientific issue. Right. But but one of the points we're trying to make is this is fundamentally cultural. The, the, the controversy is not scientific. Right. It's the controversy is political. It's cultural. It's we, we have done this. Right. And that, that's maybe one of our strongest points, I think, to the social studies field is to say this is actually in our domain squarely, perhaps even more than other areas. 
You know, th this is fundamentally cultural, and that means it's us. And, and schools need to be a big part of that. Certainly voting into office, people who are going to make policies and hold the, you know, the Exxon Mobiles accountable. But there's a lot of work for us to do. And I think, as you say, Dan, to implicate ourselves in the process. When I think, you know, if we only have scientific solutions and technology that's solving these issues, then it only takes us so far. I mean, if we keep on going with the same culture, with the same mentality towards the earth and we resolve the carbon dioxide issue and, you know, the warming of the earth, but we continue on with the extractive mentality and sort of the abusive way that we think about the earth and the land, it's going to be another problem further down the road. So I really think like addressing this at a cultural level is, you know, as urgent. I mean, I think that's it's going to take longer, but it's as urgent as any scientific or technological fix. Yeah. And, and, you know, back to the point of, you know, the corporations and everything, you know, last I checked with Citizens United, they're allowed to basically act like average citizens when, when it comes to donating politically. So really we should put them to task uh, <laughs> as you're seeing when it comes to fixing the environment, you know, there's what 50 companies and are, are responsible for 70% of carbon emissions and, and, the world, if I'm remembering that correctly. And so it, it absolutely can't just be people, but we need to also use what, you know, the tools that we have to put pressure on the politics side of it, the economic side of it, and the cultural side of it. And doing so without downplaying the enormity and the long odds that we face for success in the, in the, in the face of this stuff. I just think, first of all, as a curricular idea, like even within the disciplines, like there's a very clear history of extractive industries purposefully and knowingly. We have the documentary evidence of ExxonMobil, for instance, obfuscating the the link between fossil fuels and, and climate change that we could, I mean, we we do that very well with historical documents. Our students analyze. I would suggest that we, you know, do that with our students, but we face long odds. And, and I think that it's really important that we that we acknowledge that not not to induce despair, but to really understand the situation that we're in. You know, two degrees of warming was the threshold up until last fall for the like, could we could we maintain our current understanding of how societies are structured? And I would say Western society, capitalist societies are structured. They revised that down to one and a half degrees. And I just want to talk a little bit about what that means, because, you know, we talk climate crisis, climate change, it's like it's going to be bad. But like specifically, tens, tens of, millions of millions of people who have to leave their homes due to drought or flooding. And then there will be increased conflict, armed conflict, civil wars and the like that we've seen in, in places around the world. But more than that, over scarce resources. Then, and then, of course, like everybody knows, sea level rise, where whatever percentage of the population is going to have to move. And that isn't in the next 10 years that that will happen. But when I think I'd like to hear, you know, when you guys hear these things, like the reports are all talking about what happens by 2100. I'm not going to be here probably in 2100, but I have three kids and I, and I hope they'll be around in 2100. And if they decide to have kids, they will be. And that is a very, very harrowing kind of future to imagine. So I wonder how, how you all think about that when, when you get around to thinking about climate crisis. 
I, th- I think one thing that comes up for me is we often are talking about this as a future issue, and we know that it's already affecting people now, first thing. And again, it's the, the it's, it's a privilege to say it's a future issue. But the second thing for me is I often bring up to people is when we talk about it, I'm like, are we sure it's already not too late? And what I mean by that is for certain issues, it could be, right? Like we are, this isn't, it's, it, I feel like we talk about it now, like we still just have like, oh, we have this like gap in time where we can fix it. And once we hit those levels, it's like, there's already going to be massive problems that are going to emerge from this, even if we did everything right. And we're not doing everything right <laughs> at all. We're in fact, continuing a lot of our things. And so I think for me, yeah, I just, I really... I think about young kids in my life all the time, my nieces and nephews. I mean, I think about them when I think about this issue. And that's what makes it even worse because they're going to face a lot of these challenges. So I I think about scale and also about place. And I think we certainly have to think about the enormity of the challenge of the reality. But then we, we also can can work within our means. And and. I think it's important to talk about global citizenship, but I always get a, a, a little bit worried when our thinking becomes so broad and, and disconnected from our, our local living. You run the danger of being obsessed with just yourself or your own communities. I think you have to understand how your places are in relation to others. But ultimately, I think it, it begins with understanding our, our landedness, right? Our, our connections to the earth the essential nature of it, and then having having to operate from that standpoint. I mean, to, to me, this, this starts in early childhood education, grounding our living fundamentally in, in the land. And we, we were talking earlier kind of about agricultural societies, right? Certainly for millennia, communities and, and, and peoples have understood that we're of the earth. We, we forget that or, or we have forgotten that. I've forgotten that. Um, I say that, but it, my daily living doesn't reflect that very well. I'll say in social studies in particular, we've had a great wave of scholarship on indigenous ways of knowing. That's yeah. something that I, I want to see that folded in um, together with with earthen issues. And and I, I put a lot of hope into that. I think uh, even time back, it makes me think of uh, even John Dewey spoke of his concern around the, the turn of the, the century to the 21st century about not knowing where kids not knowing where their food comes from. Right. Like this industrialization where they don't they miss like the process by which things come to him. And so he had this one of the things he was interested in with his curriculum was them like understanding how things are made and where they come from. And we're so disconnected from the you know, the way our products are made, where they come from, the routes, the environmental impact, all those things that it's hard. It's 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 easy to separate and feel separated. One lesson I do in my classes is uses. Uh, I think I've mentioned this several times, but it's one of my favorite lessons. So I'm just going to keep talking about it. But is the Planet Money T-shirt series they have. It's like a 15 minute video and it follows the path of a T-shirt being made. And for a lot of people, it just uh, it wakes you up to the the you know, economic systems that exist. And once you see the t-shirt, you start to see it in other things. And I think that can help you see our relationship with the earth in a different way and hopefully lead to different understandings. So I, I, am, I am not pop culturally literate by any means, but one of the things that I loved about a decade ago was Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution. It was this reality show where he was in schools talking with kids about, you know, where does your food come from? And what is this thing that I'm holding up? You know, that it's 
and, and just kind of the ma mainstream U.S. culture, there was this real attention to like the amount of sugar that you're consuming, right? And th there's there's just this connection to to the land or, or to our daily living. Where where does my food come from? That comes out of that, and it it doesn't have to be extravagant. And and one of the points is it 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 doesn't require a huge amount of knowledge. It just it it, it requires inquiry, you know. Right. I actually had a, a lesson. I meant to write something up on this and I didn't. So here it is in about 10 second form is I had a lesson called the social studies of everything early in semester where I tried to get students to start seeing the social studies lessons, the historical, geographical, civics, uh, economic, ecological issues in everything in their lives. Right. So we would take the granola bar and like investigate it that somebody had. We would take the T-shirt and investigate it. We just to see that it's saying it's not even products that we all have these ways that if we inquire into them, we can learn more about their their histories and impact on the world and interconnections. And so, yeah, it's a, I think, again, and, and those th are things that um, I think would work really well in a lot of classrooms, particularly elementary. Kids are very curious about a lot of things. And when we in, uh, in, in my class looked at where the granola bars came from, we were very interested to see like, oh, they drive trucks from Danville, Illinois. And do those trucks come straight to us? What are their routes? And we had a lot of questions and we could do mapping and things like that. So it was interesting. One thing I'd like to talk about too is Jim wrote a book review here on a book that I've seen a lot of attention to. And I also follow, I mentioned I follow David Wallace Wells on Twitter, which is a, a great follow. We'll bring forth a lot of issues, but he wrote a book called Unhabitable Earth life after warming. I have honestly, this speaks to your difficult knowledge concepts and ideas, Jim. I have avoided reading it because I'm scared of what's in it. Can you tell us about reviewing that book and how you approached it? Sure. So first of all, I'm just for people who aren't familiar with the term difficult knowledge, this is a term that De uh, Deborah Britzman began using it to describe the conditions of conditions of learning that usher in senses of, of crisis or burden or discomfort or even trauma. And her use of it was in relation to Holocaust education. And others have since used it in relationship to other things in history. So for instance, lynching or slavery or other instances of social and political upheaval. But like you said, Dan, climate crisis is uniquely suited to our tendency to avoid things that make us uncomfortable. And in reading Wallace Wells's book, this is this is of a new genre of climate writing, in my view. So up until a few years ago, authors were really careful to not overstate the case at, or they would risk being called alarmists. And in the last couple of years, people have begun writing with much more urgency and honesty. And to be honest, it can be horrifying and so the experience of reading Uninhabitable Earth is one of a really intense emotional experience with the realities of what's already happening, what will happen, if, even if we do everything right, like we were just saying. But then also, like, if we, do, if we keep doing what we're doing, which is kind of the course we're on. And the way that he puts these dilemmas are striking. So he writes, for instance, that while... Three and a half degrees of warming is, is horrifying. The course that we're on is between six and eight degrees, and that's more like extinction. So the quote goes like this. Warming of three or three and a half degrees would unleash suffering beyond anything that humans have experienced through many millennia of strain and strife and all-out war. 
but it's not a fatalistic scenario. In fact, it's a whole lot better than where we are headed. Okay, so that so in that two sentence snippet, we have unimaginable kinds of fantasy that he's inviting us to participate in about suffering. But he's also saying we really need to get to work. It's not fatalistic. There's a lot at stake in our acting urgently to mitigate the like the the worst end of the of the bell curve of possibility. So where where I the reason why I wanted to review the book for theory and research and social education is is I think along the same lines as what Mark and and John are doing that like really feel strongly about the need to approach political decisions. So I don't feel quite as strongly about the earthen commitment. I feel more strongly about the political commitment to really rehabilitate democratic institutions because the the use of democratic institutions in a very radical way landed us in this situation. And this is um, this is Wells, Wells' idea too, that equally radical ideas are needed and are possible, just sort of in the opposite direction. And that's, by the way, why, so your opening quote, that book is why I was scared to read it. <laughs> that did not, that did not uh, help, but no, it's the reality that we need. And I have, and that's one thing, you know, we mentioned Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and she's one of many people, and other people have done it, but she's a politician who has seemed to be able to frame the issue in terms of solutions with the, you know, the Green New Deal and actually presenting some kind of vision of, you know, what are possibilities for this? And uh, while the, the, Zach wrote a great lesson, he he let me co-author with him, but he mainly wrote, you know, and we, we titled it, Can the Green New Deal Save Us, right? And it was about exploring the possibilities of something like the Green New Deal, which is highly misunderstood and has been politicized in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, you know, an important thing to remember, too, is that in our nation's history, when we have accomplished, you know, quote unquote, great things, there's been large scale government investment in those things, whether it be, you know, sending a man to the moon, which when you take a step back and think about it, is a crazy thing for people to, to have been doing in 1960. To, to have that goal. And, and you know, when you look at the buildup of Silicon Valley uh, and other things, a lot of that didn't just happen. It, it happened as a result of heavy government investment, both with NASA and then also with the military industrial complex that we built up. And so if we can direct our funds towards that, you know, it should be pretty easy, in my opinion, which I know it definitely isn't, but to get, you know, our government officials and, and other people in power to actually invest in these climate solutions that we desperately, desperately need. You know, as Jim was mentioning, we don't have a lot of time, right? One year has passed since the Green New Deal proposal was put out there, the most recent version of it. And that at that point, they were saying we have basically 12 to 15 years. Well, one year is already gone. So I have a question for all of you. In your work with students and teacher education, have you found them saying kind of what you're saying, Dan? This terrifies me, or I, I don't, I don't know what to do with this, or is it not even coming up at all? You know, is it kind of off the radar? It's interesting because <clears throat> I've really moved recently to doing more liberatory, democratic ways of organizing my classes, and so part of that is I really try to bring in students to the decision making process, and I haven't found that they've overwhelmingly thought this is like a social studies issue. And you asking that question has made me think I need to figure out why, because I'll like mention it. I'll say what kind of issues. And I think oftentimes they tend to gravitate towards justice issues, but around people, which is obviously important. Right. And I think of, as we've talked about, those issues are interrelated. And so I'm wondering if, if that's the avenue in that we 
we look at injustice, ecological injustices, particularly as they as they relate to race, you know, economic status, things like that. And um, but they they haven't. They, I haven't seen my students say a need for it. And maybe it's just because they don't see how it fits in the curriculum yet either. They don't have that vision that you guys are kind of putting forward. I'll be interested to see in the coming years with with so much movement around school strike for climate, Fridays for future. So students are around the world. You know, many people, but particularly youth who are you know, taking public action, protesting, you know, what kind of impact that has on our teacher education students. One idea that Zach and I have been, you know, tossing around is the idea of um, kind of promoting it as a climate change challenge and not a challenge with each other, but a challenge to ourselves. Right. To. And I think the idea is looking at multiple levels. What can I do personally? What can we do in our school? What can we do in our community? What can we do in our nation? What can we do in our on our planet, right? And looking at multiple levels of like, what can we do? Start moving towards action on those issues. And so maybe that's something this this podcast can launch us into and kind of get to, to think about, you know, how can our school reduce its carbon footprint as a starting point can be a really positive way, I think, to approach it. And now that we've spoken about it out loud to everyone in the podcast <laughs> audience, we now have to do it. It's um, now official. Which is, you know, it's one of those things where it's just, it hasn't happened yet, but really we don't have, we don't have time to waste anymore. So maybe yeah. that's a good thing we've mentioned it to get us going. And and I think to this, I mean, the, all we, all we really mean by getting it going, I think was helping to provide ideas for people of where to start. I think that's where a lot of people are. It's like, what can I do? So an initial list could be, you know, a, a climate change challenge for what can I do in my school? And okay, so here's a list of things that you could potentially do in your school. Choose the ones that work for you in your class and start doing them and start learning about, you know, the ways you're the electricity functions in your school or the the if you have sidewalks leading to your school, right? But these are all around us, right? I've seen a, a lot of my advocacy around how our cities is designed as, as climate change activism too, right? Bike lanes to me are fighting climate change. Uh, just thinking a little bit about uh, kids in the climate strike teaching science in middle school in San Francisco right now. And we went down to the climate strike in September and they had a pretty huge reaction to it. I don't know how much they were thinking about it beforehand. And, you know, we came back and they were feeling pretty upset. And um, so I think that idea of like thinking about what can happen in school, you know, what are what are actions that they can take? Because it feels like such a big problem and such an overwhelming problem. And just working through that and thinking about that with them was, was kind of a, uh, it was a challenging process. For me, I think teachers can work really hard to, to confront their students with an age-appropriate version of, of a climate crisis. They can also ask students to share what it does to them as learners to learn about this present and this future. It's okay. Like we all have inner lives, inner emotional lives that exist in relationship to the information that we're exposed to. And this would make sense that this would be a a harder one to digest uh, immediately. So talking about that, but then also really quickly after that is explore and teach students about where victories are happening. So in communities for various activist organizations, really sharing and trumpeting and amplifying what Rebecca Solnit labels as climate momentum. And it's not all momentum, but where but where we see it, we need to know about it and share it with one another. And then acknowledge that like we just we have to like we're saying, we have to intervene and try on 
on as many levels as we can and fully admit that we don't know what the outcome will be. Like we can't be guaranteed of success. That doesn't mean to not intervene fully. I really like that idea of showing them what victory looks like because sometimes the problem can seem so overwhelming that we have to be able to, we had actually on episode three, we had a visioning episode that you have to be able to actually vision the, the end goal of what you want. Like what would successful climate change activism look like? And you have to get rid of all of the things that make it seem impossible. And in envisioning in envisioning that that possibility of what that future would look like, you start to see new possibilities of what you can do. And it helps to bring that up. But I actually hadn't thought about it that way until you said it, but I often do that with urban issues, right? I point out, for example, how Amsterdam, you know, in the 1970s was their streets were fully car-centric and geared towards that. Now, if you go to Amsterdam, bikes dominate, you know, in ways that are incredible. And it's not, any, it's not cultural, it's infrastructural. They built bike lanes and people started using them. And it doesn't matter what your weather is, wherever you live, if you build infrastructure, people will start using it. Nothing particular. Texans will say, no, we have to have our trucks. I'm like, if you build bike lanes, people will use them. If you have an infrastructure, it's useful. It really will work. And it's hard because there's a lot of retrofitting that's going to have to happen around the way we've designed our society. Another victory that I saw yesterday was that the Guardian News now um, will no longer advertise or take advertising money from fossil fuel companies which is huge, like all the divestment actions that are happening in many university campuses are huge movements that are getting a lot of victories. So these financial actions that target fossil fuel companies are really, really successful. I totally agree. I think these stories are so important. And I want that coupled with the local victories. So, I, you know, uh, Dan, you were talking about how you know, a school that's thinking about energy consumption or uh, let's see, maybe they, they move towards zero waste and they don't actually get there, but they they have, you know, only one dumpster tip each week as opposed to five. You know, so it, it's it's the both both hearing the stories uh, from around the world on different scales, but also, you know, concrete local action that can happen in school and then also in the communities around the schools. Just one more little nice story of success uh, today. It's the first day that uh, Market Street in San Francisco is closed to personal vehicles. So that's a really busy street that has a lot of accidents with and bikes. And now there's uh, uh, buses and taxis and that's it. So I thought that was a cool, cool thing that people voted in. I saw that on Twitter and was thought it looked beautiful. It's It's like my dream. I love that. In addition to looking at these victories is always looking historically at the way that social movements have operated, what tactics and strategies they use, specifically with the civil rights movement and engaging with civil rights community elders to see how they organized how, and, the, and hear their testimony about what that felt like, just as daunting and worthy of despair as we feel in this situation, has been encountered before. So we're not the first group of people to encounter like desperate times. And so really helping students to understand that even manifestations, Black Lives Matter, for instance, are, are great places for us to look for how these victories come about through community organizing. Activism. Yeah, as a current social studies teacher, like I mentioned, you know, I teach economics at the high school that I work at. And all these suggestions are really, really good because, you know, oftentimes when I've brought, you know, whether it's the Green New Deal lesson or 
teaching students about the market forces of recycling or any of the other issues that we face, it can be really challenging to give them hope and to show them ways that they can be effective in making this change. So I think that these are all really great suggestions that I'm definitely taking notes on how to use in my classroom. And I definitely hope that uh, other teachers out there that are listening find ways and, and can let us know how it goes online and in other spaces. Sounds like Zach made a commitment to the climate change challenge in his own classroom. Absolutely. With his curriculum. That's one of the places you can make a difference. So this may be one of our uh, longest episodes. This may be our longest episode in Visions of Education history. And it's probably because this is a long overdue episode. And I think we've mentioned it a a couple of times, but uh, we are five white guys talking here about climate change. Um, I'd like to invite other scholars in in the social studies community and who do work in these areas to contact us if you'd like to come on and discuss this, because I think we need to bring in a variety of other people to discuss these issues. And so we're, we're certainly committed to having more episodes on this issue going forward. Definitely more than social education in the 1970s. And and part of Zach's climate change challenge is going to edit episodes, even maybe two a week now, to make sure that we can do more ecological episodes. Right, Zach? Sure thing, Dan. <laughs> Way to go, Zach. <laughs> So thank you guys all for joining us. We really appreciate it. And we and please make sure to check the show notes. We have all the resources that we mentioned here and we're going to have in the show notes. And um, that can be a good place to think about some of the things in your in your social studies classroom that you can do. So, OK, so where can our listeners find each of you online, you and your work? So I'll start. I, I'm in a black hole by my, my faculty page, Penn State, but uh, I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. I'm in the 1840s. You should see his flip phone that he has. It's pretty uh, pretty dinosaur-esque. That's impressive. And I also am not on Twitter, Facebook, uh, and I don't even have a faculty or any sort of website. You can follow me on Twitter at hjamesgarrett. We will link to uh, Mark's faculty website, Jim's Twitter account, and John, we'll just yell out for you into the wind. We'll look for you on Market Street where there are no cars. There we go. Yeah. Oh, you know, I might show up there on my bike. I'm going to I'm going to take some uh, low carbon transportation across the country and bike along Market Street. So thank you all so much for joining us today. We certainly hope to continue the discussion online and other spaces. And here at the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, you can tweet us at Vision of Ed or just tweet us your ideas for how you're going to address climate change in your classroom. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. You can also write us a five-star review, which helps people find this podcast. And Zach's right here, so I can thank him for editing all our episodes. Thanks, Zach. No problem, Dan. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And in his absence, you can also find Michael Milton at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.